So good. I'm so glad. I'm so excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, let's give it up one more time for the worship team that came in and, and really guided us into worship. For those of you that don't know, my name is Prentice. I'm the new lead pastor here at West Seattle. And there's so many cool things going on uh, this morning and this week. As you know, there's a lot of empty seats. Uh, the women's retreat, it was a very successful attendance there. It's happening right now. Uh, in Leavenworth, I believe, uh, and I just got a text from Sarah O'Dell, our children's pastor, that it, things are going incredible, that God is really present in that time. So I think uh, even today's attendance has been great, considering a lot of the women are gone at the retreat. Uh, and the funny thing is, this morning we're going to continue this uh, sermon series on constant, with the subject this morning being on intimacy. And so I was looking around in the room before I was here this morning is setting up, and I was like, man, i got to prepare a sermon uh, of, called Intimacy, probably towards majority of the men. So I wonder how that's going to go. Uh, so anyways, I'm glad that it's, there's still a mixture of going on. And as Sarah Sefke said, uh, there's a few other things going on in the life of our church. Uh, and if you have your bulletin, it's, it's going to be in your bulletin. I encourage you to take it home, circle it, put it on your fridge, whatever you need to do. Uh, in order to remember the important things that are happening. A few things I want to highlight is that here we are serving a high, uh, at High Point Community Center a Thanksgiving dinner. That's going to happen on November 17th from 5 to 7. We need volunteers. We need people to be present. Again, we just here, here's my heart, and I'm kind of going off note here, that as we meet in this place, High Point Community Center, that we wouldn't just be this people of... Uh, on Sundays where we just come and just become tenants here and just do our own thing and take off into our own little worlds. That there's actually life, there's ministry, and there's people here at High Point Community Center uh, that we can help, that we can serve, that we can walk alongside and provide friendship with. And so if we have not done that yet, this is an awesome time to get started. Uh, there's a sign-up uh, at the info desk. Uh, so if you want to do that, you can put your name down, your email, and we'll contact you. Again, it's a great opportunity for us to serve together at the very space and the people that we meet with here. So that's a huge passion of mine, and so I hope that you will join me in doing that. Also, November 14th is our annual meeting. It's going to be at Chris and Melinda Carter's place. For those of you that don't know who they are or, or where they live, please, there's going to be another sign-up sheet uh, on that same table. If you give us your name and email, we'll send you the address. Uh, but that happens on the 14th at 7 p.m. And so that's the way that the, the, uh, the annual meetings work is that this is happening at Bethany globally. So there's six locations that meet. Uh, in the, in the, we're going to have a live feed from Green Lake. And we're going to be talking about all the wonderful ways that God has been working in the life of our church uh, globally. Uh, and what to expect coming up in the future of this year of what's happening in the life of Bethany as well. Uh, then after that, we'll be kind of breaking off into our own specific locations. So I'll have something to say. I'll, I'll uh, give it over to some of the leadership team. You'll get to meet them. Uh, there's some cool things that are brewing up that we want you to get to know uh, and to be part of that conversation. And so please, uh, if you have that evening off, we would love for you to join us there uh, and to learn just a little bit more about Bethany, West Seattle. Now, this is uh, technically, it's called an annual members meeting, but, but I want to say everyone is encouraged to be there, whether you're a member, whether you've been here for years, whether you've been here for just a couple weeks. Uh, it'd be a great opportunity for us to get to know you and for you to get to know us. 
<coughs> and, and finally, our, our last announcement is, again, as Sarah said, uh, this is Volunteer Appreciation Month. Now, I'll be honest with you, uh, one month probably doesn't cover how much uh, we need to thank our volunteers. Uh, as looking at the list, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's over, I think the number was 60-something percent of the people here at Bethany West Seattle are involved in serving in one way or another. And so to you that give sacrificially with your time, your resources, your love, your passions, we want to thank you right now. Let's give them a round of applause. They're sitting in this room. We're so thankful for you. I, I took a picture this morning of just all the wonderful things that were happening, and that this place would not be happening without those volunteers. And so again, we're in so much uh, thankfulness and gratitude towards you. Each week, we're going to highlight just a few of the uh, volunteer areas. Uh, and this week, we want to just do this. It's kind of weird. It's kind of embarrassing. But I, we just want to celebrate you. That if you're part of the, uh, the ushers or greeters team or the welcome team uh, or a small group leader, will you, will you do me a favor? Will you stand up just so we can see you? Will you stand up <laughs> so we can recognize and and say thank you. With a quick stand up, quick sit down. All right, perfect. All we, oh, what we want to do, the point is not to embarrass you, but for us to recognize you and for you to be valued and to be celebrated. Because again, you are a big part of this church, especially being a set up, tear down church. Uh, we need everybody to get involved one way or another. And so again, this is not a guilt trip. I'm not trying to pressure those uh, that aren't serving. Sometimes church is a place where you just need to come, receive, and leave, and that's okay too. Uh, but for others, uh, we'd love to see you uh, participate. So, again, with all that said, let me just pray for our time and we'll get started. God, we thank you that you've called us here and you call us into not just to show up, but to, be, to practice intimacy and community. We're so thankful that we get to hear from you so just be with us today. Be with those that are at the retreat. Uh, protect them. Give them safe travels. Uh, and may you have just worked in such mighty and powerful ways in their lives and at that retreat. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. <coughs> so, so a few years ago, I want to start off with a story. So a few years ago, I was at this old previous church. And I was volunteering in the nursery. Uh, I know, it's kind of crazy, right? They would trust me uh, to volunteer in the nursery. But I kid you not that when I was there, they would nickname me the Baby Whisperer, okay? Because for some reason, uh, and I, maybe that, I shouldn't have said that because now everyone's going to bring me their child and say, hey, you know, make them stop. Uh, but I love children, uh, and, and they call me the Baby Whisperer because for some, for some reason, whenever a baby is crying or, or a child is crying, I'll, you know, I'll pick them up, I'll rock them, I would feed them, or whatever it is, and they would just stop crying. And so I kind of took pride in being the Baby Whisperer uh, at my last church when I was volunteering. And, and then there was this one Sunday morning where there was a child, uh, he kept crying and crying, and it wouldn't stop. And so they're like, Prentice, you're up, this is your cue. And I said, all right, challenge accepted. And so as this baby was crying, uh, I would say, oh, that's okay. I, I would pick up the baby, uh, and, and I would give him a toy, and it didn't work. Hmm. Well, typically that works. Uh, and so I would give him a pacifier. He would just spit it out, and he would just continue crying and crying. And finally, I would just kind of hold him, and I would just kind of rock him and, and kind of sing, you know, like a lullaby or like a song. And maybe that made him cry worse because he started crying worse. 
And, and so finally, the people in the children's ministry said, okay, uh, this is a time where we just have to call the parent, and we have to call the parent to, to have that parent come and, and kind of rescue us from this crying child. And I felt a little disappointed because I didn't really do my job well, but I said, okay, that's fine. And I was still holding the baby as the baby was crying. And as the mother walked in, as soon as I handed the baby over to the mother, guess what happened? The baby immediately, he stopped crying instantly. Instantly, as soon as the the mother and the son were, were connected, once again brought together, the baby stopped crying immediately. See, there was something that happened when I gave the baby over to the mother. All of a sudden, the baby, the, the son, suddenly felt safe, suddenly felt protected suddenly understood that with the mother that was around, that at the end of the day, ultimately, that things were going to be okay. There was a strong connection that was reestablished between the baby uh, and his mother. And, And if I can sum up this word that describes all that has happened, I'll sum it up with this word. The word is the level of intimacy that they had between one another. See, there was no longer feeling of danger. There was only safety. There was no longer a a sense of fear, only protection. And there was no more anxiety, only peace, as soon as the son was reconnected with his mother. There was intimacy. And I remember at that single moment, at that point, that this illustration was an illustration of exactly how us as humans, how we are wired, how we were created to live. We were created to live a life of intimacy, a sense of closeness with others, where we can also feel safe in the context of our relationships where there's trust, where there's peace. If you're being honest, as as I hope we are, these are the kind of relationships in our lives that our soul craves for, that our soul absolutely craves for. And I love how this one pastor in his book says it this way. Here's how he describes intimacy. Intimacy is a blending of our hearts with another, so we can see into who they really are, and they can see into us and who we really are. And he continues by saying this, this is something we all long for because God created us that way. We were designed for this kind of connection. And so again, as we have been doing in the last several weeks, is that we take topics and certain themes, and we take it through a lens of creation, how it was created to be. And and then this idea of disruption, uh, of how it got messed up by humanity. And and then in in that sense of disruption, that God brings hope into that and, and culminates it into ultimately what God desires it to be. And so we'll start with this. We'll start with the creation of intimacy, And we looked throughout Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 when all things were created in terms of humanity and our relationship with one another. Uh, So here we go. So God created, right? The whole Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is all about God creating. 
And after each day that God created, he said this. He said, it was good. It was good. And then the thing that we have to deal with in our 21st century Western lens is that when we talk about this word good, we easily just gloss over it, right? Because uh, some synonyms for, for, for good is, oh, it was, it was great. It was good. It was nice. It was just something that was pleasant is the way we look at it. But the word good in the Hebrew word is this word tov. You may have heard of it. But it was far more than something that was just good or pleasant or nice. This idea of tov, of good, it was that when something was functional. When something was functioning the way it was exactly supposed to be, that and only that is when something is good. When it's tov. When something's functioning the way it was supposed to. So after God completed each day, whatever day that was, when God was finished and when that was happening the way it was supposed to, each day, that was good. That was functioning. That was tov. Now, in chapter 2, as we move on to this idea of creation on 2.18, uh, for the first time, we see a different term. Not just tov, it was good, it was functional, but we see this term, uh, this word called lotov, which is a Hebrew word. And this Hebrew word lotov means it was not good. For the first time, we see not good. So we, for several days, we see it was good, it was functioning, it was good, it was tov, it was tov. Chapter 2, verse 18, Lotov. It was not good. And we see what was it that was not good? It was this. It was Adam being alone with no companionship. That was the first time we see something that was Lotov, not functioning the way it's supposed to. And so then Adam, or so then God created Adam and created Eve, and Eve came along as an equal image bearer of God, as an equal image bearer of God. And finally, things were the way it was supposed to be. There was intimacy between the two, not just between the two, but also connected to God. And the, <coughs> and the, and the fascinating thing that I think is fascinating is this is actually another time where we see the first this is the first time we see another phrase called mayod tov. Sorry, this is a little bit of a Hebrew language seminar this morning. But it's another word called, uh, is mayod tov. First time we see this. So we see tov, good. We see lo tov, not good. And then now for the first time we see mayod tov. And for the first time what that means is, and it was very good. It was very good. Not only was it good, the six times that God said it was, something was, but now that when creation, when two people uh, are sharing intimacy, when they're connected, not only is it just tov, but it's male tov, it's very good. Very, very good. That's exactly the way God intended it to be. In Genesis 2.25, then as we kind of progress along, it says that they were naked and unashamed. 
They were naked and unashamed. So what was very good about the intimacy that they had was the fact that they were both naked and unashamed. Now, what we have to do is we have to look at this verse and get rid of this notion that naked and unashamed just simply means that they had no clothes. Yes, that was true. Adam and Eve, they had no clothes at this time, but they were naked and unashamed, meaning that together there was so much intimacy between the two that there was no shame, there was full vulnerability, there was full openness without the fear of being judged, without the fear of being criticized or made fun of. There was no embarrassment. They were together exactly the way they were supposed to be as created by God. Two people to experience 100% intimacy, to be open and to be just alive in front of one another, accepting each other with no judgment whatsoever. They were both naked and unashamed. And God called that meotov very, very good. It was functioning exactly the way it was supposed to be as they were naked and unashamed with one another. Now, see, there's an economy when it comes to intimacy that God has established. First, intimacy begins with God, that, our close, that is out of our closeness with God, our intimacy, uh, our connection with God that brings a closeness and an intimacy with those around us. And when we're living a life of intimacy with our Creator, when we're living a life of intimacy with our Creator, intimacy also deepens between creation. So when our intimacy with the Creator is good, it's in perfect harmony, it's in line, we're in tune with God's heart, we have that intimacy with the Creator, the intimacy of creation gets deepened and becomes meaningful and thoughtful and loving and tove, exactly the way God called this to be. I mean, we see this in our daily lives, don't we? Even, even the basic way that we treat people is a direct reflection, if you're a follower of Jesus, of our relationship with God. We, we know that when our relationship with God is so in tune and so good and so intimate that it becomes a byproduct of the way we treat others and the way we love and treat the people that are around us. <clears throat> a good litmus test for me uh, is when I'm driving. All right, and maybe some of you guys don't, uh, don't have challenges in your driving, in your patience in driving, uh, but if I'm, in, if I'm being fully transparent with you, uh, that's a part uh, of my life that I can probably work on, uh, is uh, having patience in driving. But driving to me is a litmus test because I know when I'm in completely in tune with God, that when I'm driving, things are good. I'm okay. Hey, you want to cut me off? Go ahead. As a matter of fact, you should go in front of me too. Like I get, I get really, really generous when I'm driving. But the opposite is true. When I find myself driving and someone's cutting me off, uh, or you know, I, I'm having this conversation with the car next to me, he's telling me I'm number one, which I'm really thankful for, and that's great. When those things are happening, uh, then I know, hmm, I think my relationship with God, the intimacy, uh, it's not doing pretty well. And so naturally we see that there's a direct correlation that when we are completely connected in tune with God, that somehow, some way, mysteriously even, it reflects the way we treat the people around us. And yes, driving was a, was a kind of a, a generic example, but it goes even deeper with the people that you love, the people that you spend time with, the people that you're surrounded with. 
Because that exactly is the way that God created us and to function, to be in intimacy with one another. <clears throat> and I know a lot of us, will, they'll say like, Prentice, you don't understand, like, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't like being around people. I don't like talking to people. And, 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 I, and, I, and for some reason, I don't, I don't buy that because, again, that is not the way we're created. As a matter of fact, I'm a huge introvert. You know, I love being by myself. I love unwinding with a good book, coffee, uh, or watching TV or wh- whatever it is. I love, I love that time. But that time alone is not in the wholeness of who I'm supposed to be. We were all created to be intimately connected with God and with one another. Now we go from this creation, that's what creation of intimacy was all about. We go to this place of disruption. Because here's the deal, the beauty of intimacy, uh, and I love how another pastor, Erwin McMahon, is in this book called Soul Craving. He says this, here's the beauty of intimacy, that we are most alive when we find it, most devastated when we lose it, most empty when we give up on it, most inhuman when we betray it, and most passionate when we pursue it. Isn't that beautiful? That's intimacy. And so here's the deal. I would argue that there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to the idea of intimacy. Either you feel so alive and so connected because you are experiencing intimacy with God and with those around you, or you feel a deficit because of the absence of it. You either feel really alive because you have it, or you feel a loss because you're in an absence of it. But intimacy, there's no such thing as neutrality when it comes to it. <clears throat> and maybe you've experienced a deficit of this. Maybe you're battling, you're sitting here and you're battling loneliness. And let me make something clear here. Loneliness shows no favoritism. It will hit you regardless of your marital status, of your financial status, of your social status. As a matter of fact, some of the loneliest people that have come into my office or the ones that I've talked to are people that can check off every single one of these boxes, and yet, for some reason, a time in their life, they are the loneliest they've ever been. Ever been. Or maybe some of you guys are sitting in this chair and you're wrestling with depression and or, and or anxiety because you lack this intimacy that we're so created to have because we crave it so much. Or you feel isolated from the world. Or again, maybe you're sitting in this chair, secretly you're dying inside, but when someone asks you how you're doing, you say, I'm doing fantastic. We've done that, haven't we? And to make matters worse, when we, when we experience these moments, this, this deficit, this loss of the very thing that we crave for, we turn to other things. We can't help but to turn to other things, to fulfill that gap, but only to find out that if it's not this reconnection with God and others, it leaves us even deeper into the dark place that we started. <clears throat> I think we've all experienced this as well. We look for intimacy and even unhealthy relationships because our craving for intimacy is so intense that we convince ourselves that it's actually better to be in an unhealthy relationship than no relationship at all. 
Or we look to, the, we look to sex, uh, a physical connection. Because we believe in this myth that sex and intimacy are the same thing. But don't be fooled. I want you to listen to this carefully. This is really important. That it only works one way when it comes to sexuality. That sex can only be a byproduct, a result of intimacy, never ever the other way around. Intimacy is never the byproduct of sex alone. It only works one way. And the reality is this. We are in an extremely, we are in in an extremely intimacy-starved culture, yet there's more access to sex today more than ever. Or maybe some of us, we look for it uh, being so connected to our work, and thus we fall into workaholism. Or maybe some of us, we want to suppress the pain of not having intimacy, and so, so we look to substances, and we call it addiction. We find it all in the wrong place. And Pascal uh, says it this way, and I love the concept that he brings up. Pascal says that we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Every one of us as created by God, we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And we can try to fill it in with everything else in life, with sex, with unhealthy relationships, with money, with status, with social fame, whatever it is, but it just does not fit. And again, you're left more exhausted and more miserable and even in a darker place than you started. <clears throat> Here in John 4, we'll get to in just a moment, uh, is, is a story that we've all heard of. And I just want to read you just a little bit uh, of John chapter 4 of woman, uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus meets with. It says, Then came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For, the, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And verse 10 says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw. She doesn't get it. This is kind of funny to me. But, but Jesus, you have nothing to draw uh, the water with, and it's the, the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you who gave us the well and drank of it himself, and his sons and his, cat and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall never shall shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I give shall never thirst. So here's a few things that's going on in our text this morning, is that uh, Jesus goes to this well and meets with this Samaritan woman who's also uh, gathering some water. And there's a lot of confusion here. Uh, the woman is saying, uh, or is Jesus saying to the woman, I have water for you that if you drink of it, then you will never, ever thirst 
And this woman is confused, saying, what are you talking about? Uh, how can you offer me this water that I'll never thirst? You don't even have a bucket to draw the water from. So, so she's a little confused until Jesus kind of breaks it down for her and says, the water that I provide is living water, is different from the water that you're bringing up from the well, and it's a water that will always give life, and it says life eternal in a beautiful, beautiful, unending way. And finally, this woman is sold. She says, I want some of that water. I want to be a part of that. She's starting to understand what Jesus is offering. And then he said, go call your husband. So later in the text, he says, go call your husband and bring him back to me and bring him back here. And she said, as some of you guys know the text, I have no husband. I have no husband. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I know. I knew that about you. As a matter of fact, not only that, I know that you've had five husbands in the past. And not only that, I also know that the man that you're living with, that you are with, is actually not your husband either, which in that Danian culture is also a form of major shame. Now, there's a few things that we want to observe here. There's three social barriers that Jesus is breaking through. First is gender, the second is race, and the third is morality. The Samaritan woman is a woman. She's a Samaritan, so a different race, (coughs) and considered immoral because, you know, in this time, having five husbands and living with the one uh, that is not, is considered immoral. And yet Jesus is breaking through all those social barriers to connect, to have intimacy uh, in this connection with her. There's, there's two things that we want to observe. And it's really important for us to understand what's really happening here. It says that when Jesus arrived at the well, it was noon. We said uh, that happened uh, in, in verse 1 and 2. Now when Jesus arrived at the well, it was noonday. Now, the writer of this was very intentional of saying that Jesus and the Samaritan woman alone, they met uh, during midday. Now, here's the thing about water and gathering water at this time, especially for the women. It was a very communal time. The women would go gather together, not just for the sake of water, but it was a social time for the women to do work together, to get to know each other, to be intimate in that relationship with one another. But they would never, ever go midday because it was too hot. And so they would only go in the mornings so they can avoid the major heat. They would go together, wake up early, they'd go together, get some water, talk, hang out, and then go back. But for some reason, this woman was at the well not in the morning. As a matter of fact, not only was it not in the morning, but it wasn't with people either. She was there all by herself in that hot midday in the ancient Near East. So we don't exactly know why this is the case, but, but we can assume it just from the other texts and from the other verses that we read, it's because of shame. She was ashamed of her lifestyle. Or, or not only what, could it be shame, it was because people shunned her. There was a lack of intimacy that people pushed her out of. And so therefore, she had to go to the well all by herself. And the second is this, and this is the really interesting part, and I'll read it just real quick. Verse 16, uh, and a few verses in, it says this. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, so this is kind of interesting. 
Jesus says, go call your husband and come here uh, for you, and then continues and says, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you are with is not your husband. And in verse 19, the woman's response, woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and, and you people say that, in, that the worship should happen in Jerusalem. So it's easy to miss here. So Jesus is confronting her and saying, you're living a lifestyle. Where are you finding your intimacy? And the lack of intimacy that you have, you're at this well by yourself. You've probably been shunned or you feel shame, but you have a lack of intimacy. And so you show up by yourself. Where are you finding your intimacy? Is it through these relationships? Is it through your previous husbands? Is it through this person uh, that you're living with now? And her response is, uh, oh, actually, Jesus, uh, I heard that uh, you guys worship your God somewhere else, and, and us as Samaritans, we worship God here on this mountain. There was a change in subject immediately when God, when Jesus was kind of calling her out. And so many scholars believe, and a lot of scholars that I trust believe, that she changes the subject immediately due to her shame. And so we see this idea of shame everywhere, even, in the, even from the beginning of time with Adam and Eve. The shame is an, and shame is an absolute killer of intimacy. We see that Adam and Eve, as soon as they felt shame, they covered up from each other, they covered, covered up, they ran away from God. Shame was an absolute killer of intimacy. And here's the reality, that shame and intimacy, it is impossible for those two to live together. It is impossible for shame and intimacy to coexist. And so we do the same thing. We run away, we hide. Because our biggest fear, oftentimes, is to be found out. Our biggest fear sometimes is not only to know others, but it's also to be known by others. And at the very beginning, we talked about that is the definition of intimacy. We become afraid of it. I would argue that shame is so dangerous that it's lethal, and it doesn't just disrupt our intimacy with God, uh, but it also interrupts our intimacy with the people around us but it also interrupts the intimacy between us and our own selves. There's this writer and author, uh, and she's a shame and vulnerability specialist, uh, and her name is Brene Brown. Uh, And I love a lot of the work that she's written, and she says this, that shame is about believing the lie that you are unworthy. At the heart of shame is believing in this lie that you are unworthy unworthy, unworthy of love, unworthy of friendship, unworthy of romantic relationships, unworthy of acceptance, that that we believe in this lie that shame tells us, that we're unworthy. It's a story that we repeat in our own heads over and over again, and it simply lies, and they're not true, and as a matter of fact, oftentimes, Every time is antithetical to who God says you are. It's antithetical to who God says who you are. 
We believe we're unworthy of God's love. Instantly, there's a barrier in that intimacy. We believe that we're unworthy of friendship, and instantly there's a barrier of intimacy within friends. We believe that we're unworthy of romantic relationships, and immediately there's barriers in your love life. We believe that we're unworthy of fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, and immediately there's a barrier in intimacy there. And we fear this so much. (coughs) We fear so much of being unworthy that we hide, believing that as long as people don't find out about me, I will stay worthy. I remember this one time uh, when I was growing up. Sometimes I would pretend I was a little bit more sicker than I was to stay home. Uh, have any of you guys ever done Maybe you guys still do that today with work. And so I remember this one time I was staying at home, uh, and I was just watching TV, and I was, you know, just, I was sick. And for some reason, I don't remember why, but my mom was also, she worked, but she was also home that day. And when you're sick daytime and you're, you're a kid like me, uh, you just watch TV. And I don't know if you guys ever watch daytime TV these days, but there's really, especially at that time, only two things that you can watch. One would be uh, daytime soap operas, right? Like Days of Our Lives and my dating myself. But there's shows like that. And, and your only second option is this. Your second option is really trashy talk shows, right? And of course... I chose the trashy talk shows. And I think it was like watching like Maury Povich or something. And, and he has TV, sh- he has these episodes of one of two things, lie detector test or pregnancy test or something like that. And it's either a lie or a not lie. And that's what I was watching. And, and I was watching this and my mom was like, what are you watching? And I kind of gave her the synopsis and she was kind of boggled. And she says, why? And I'll never forget why, I'll never forget what she said when I was watching this. She said, why in the world would people go on talk shows and spill their dirty laundry to people? Why in the world would you go on national TV for the whole world to know the issues that you're dealing with? And that kind of was the culture and the, and the life that I kind of grew up with, was that why in the world would, would we be, uh, what would we expose ourselves into shame? We wouldn't do that. But see, now there's a hope uh, that God talks about all throughout Scripture. And, and when we experience shame, there's a pathway back to intimacy. And the pathway is this. It's the vehicle of vulnerability. It's the vehicle of vulnerability that brings us away from shame and back into intimacy. And the Bible talks about it all the time, but the Bible calls it confession. Confession. In James chapter 4, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to the one and pray for for another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and it's effective. And I'll say this, and it brings people back into connection through this idea of confession. And in 1 John 1 chapter 9, it says this, If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's not surprised when we sin. Is that a surprise to hear? I hope not. God is not surprised when we pray and we're vulnerable with him and with others. But I'll tell you this, there's something very spiritual when it comes to this idea of saying these things out loud. When we're able to say it out loud to God and to others, the shame is demystified. Failure is demystified. 
And it takes away the heaviness of the things of the shame that we carry on our backs. In our staff meeting every other week that we have, I always start off with three questions every single time. The three questions are these. One, what's going really well for you as a staff? And I answer these myself. What's going really well? Number two, uh, and I want you to start the sentence like this. What did I fail at? What did I fail at? And three, what do I need help with? And these are very unfamiliar and kind of scary language. Like, oh my God, I don't want to... I don't want to expose to my team or the staff or my boss or whatever it is that I failed at something, nor do I want to confess that I want to admit, some, admit that I need help in something. But see, what I want to try to do is I want to cultivate this environment, not just within our staff, but within our church, within our neighborhoods, within our community, that failure is not an F word. It is something that we should be vulnerable with uh, and expose each other with Because it's through the vehicle of vulnerability, of being honest, of taking that chance that connects us back into intimacy, intimacy that which is good, that which is tov, which is how God created us to be uh, living with, with one another. And so I kind of want to end with this idea of culmination. Culmination can start right now, right here with us. We can build this sense of intimacy through our relationship with God, with others, with our spouse, with our friends, with our family, with our church, with our neighborhood, regardless if we know them or not, regardless how different they are from us, regardless of what language they speak, of what even religion they are. We can be friends with them and have intimate friendship and know them as they know us as well. And I know I keep talking about Brene Brown right now, but she also says this. She says, the ingredients, the perfect recipe for shame is secrecy, silence, and judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. That is an intimacy killer. And these secrecy, silence, and judgment comes in all forms, shapes, and sizes. And maybe I'm going to be really real here right now, and this includes myself too. Do you engage in gossip? Because you're perpetuating shame. And my youth pastor always used to say this to me. If someone gossips to you, it's kind of cheesy, but if someone gossips to you, they probably gossip about you as well. And immediately, safety gone. Safety gone, intimacy cut. Are you sarcastic? I know that I have a problem with this, and I'm something that I'm working through. Uh, Sure, you might develop intimacy from laughter of your friends of others, but oftentimes sarcasm comes at the expense of somebody else. And I don't know if you know this, but this is really interesting. The original word of sarcasm means to tear apart flesh. Sarcasm means to tear apart flesh. And so though, through our sarcasm, we may develop intimacy with somebody else, but it's at the expense of somebody else, of the other. Are we dishonest? Do we keep secrets? Do we judge others? Are we exclusive? These are ways that we destroy intimacy, even in our own lives. And I want us to be a church that is a safe place to practice, for all of us to practice vulnerability with one another, without fear, without shame, to take a chance, because the result of that is intimacy between all of us, the way that God created us, to be. 
And I promise you, as we respond in intimacy and transparency and vulnerability with one another, we'll oftentimes hear this. And again, uh, Brene Brown says, these are the two most powerful words that you'll ever hear somebody else say. And the two words are these, me too. Me too. We'll find out that as we're vulnerable and as we share our lives with one another, that we have so much in common, our joys, but also our sorrows and our pains. And that immediately, it can be two strangers, will build solidarity with one another. Last winter, I preached at Green Lake uh, about at the longest night service about loss and grief. And I went to a complete, I told a story about how I lost my grandmother. And it was really hard for myself and with my family. And some stranger came up to me and said, you know what, Prince, I lost my grandmother last year too, and it was really hard. And I didn't know that person, but immediately there was intimacy between us two because of the words, me too. And so I encourage you, I urge you and myself, don't do life alone. And again, you can be surrounded with hundreds of people and yet still be doing life alone. That's the ironic part. You can work with tons of people. You can go to church with tons of people. You can be surrounded with people. You can be married. You can be single. You can go to school with tons of people. And yet you can still be doing life alone. And don't do life alone. It's not the way we were created. There's practical things even at our church. You can join a small group, get to know people. You can serve in whatever team. You get to know people. One of the things that we talked about just earlier this morning is is someone came up to me and said, Prince, you know what a cool thing about serving is? It's not just that I get to serve. It's that this is where I develop friendships. This is where I develop relationships. So maybe this is a practical step that you can take when it comes to entering into vulnerability, community, and intimacy. And it's through the blood of Jesus, it's through what Jesus did on that cross that provides a pathway for that. And so right now, we're going to to, uh, enter into a time of communion. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here uh, and and lead us into a song and prepare our hearts as we do this. Now, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, brokenness of intimacy, he took the bread and, and he said, Eat this, partake in this, for this is my body. Eat it in remembrance of me. And through this, may you enter into intimacy with me and with others. And then Jesus took the blood, the cup of wine, and says, this represents my blood that was shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. And at the end of the day, all this talk about intimacy, about connection, about love, about vulnerability, all of that is possible because of the life and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's through that cross that God invites us to be in full partnership with Him and with others in a beautiful and life-giving way. And I just want to say this, I'll stick around and other leaders will be here, if you have not experienced, if you're here just kind of questioning this God thing, A, thank you so much for taking a chance on us this morning. If someone dragged you here out of your own, not of your will, and you're just here going through the motions, 
thank you for being here. But I really believe that you're sitting in this chair because God has called you to be here, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. But if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here. I would love to talk to you. I would love to have lunch with you. And I would love to invite you into this place that you can call home, that you can feel safe, you can feel loved, and you can feel connected, and you can live this beautiful life that God has called you to live. And so as we enter into communion, this is for everybody. This is for everybody. I would love for you to uh, just come into the inside of your aisles. There'll be communion servers that will serve you communion. I'll invite the servers up now. Uh, And after you're done taking communion, you can go back the other way, back into your seats. These are gluten-free for those of you that have questions about that. Let me just pray for our time. God, thank you so much that you invite us into a life of intimacy with you and with the people around us. That is the way we were created. That is the way we are meant to live. And when we do live that way, things are good. It is tov, not just tov, but very good. And it's then and only then we live life and experience life the way it's supposed to be experienced. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that. In your name we pray.